The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. If you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to John's Gospel. We're in chapter 14 this evening. The title of my message for you tonight is The Gifts of the Father, and we've been looking at these interactions that Jesus had with his disciples. These are among the last words that Jesus ever spoke to them. It's the last meal that Jesus ever shared with them. And following dinner where he he instituted the Lord's Supper, Jesus removed himself from the table and he, he took off his outer garments and he went from each of the disciples to the next and he began to wash their feet. And then he shared some troubling news with them about how he would be leaving them. And, and, and of course, this sent shockwaves through the ranks of the disciples. And so he then began to comfort them by telling them he was going to his father's house to prepare a place for them. And then he invited them to pray in his name to the Father. In other words, you've prayed to God up until this point. Now I want you to pray through me. I am God, and I will hear your prayers, and I will respond to whatever you ask for in my name according to faith. And now as we continue on through the evening, we're going to hear Jesus talk about several gifts that the Father wanted to give to the disciples. But he begins there in verse 15 of John 14 by saying this, if you love me, then keep my commandments. Let's talk for a moment or two about the, essential, the, the importance, I'll say, of obedience He says that one of the ways we as his disciples prove our love for him is through our obedience. Love and obedience, they're two sides of the same coin, according to Jesus. Now, in our culture, we typically associate love more with feelings, right? The problem with that is, well, feelings, they can be fickle. Sometimes I'm on an emotional high. Sometimes I feel madly in love, but other days I feel nothing at all. And so real love, biblical love, it's not less than emotions. It doesn't, it's not void of emotions, but it's not simply emotionalism. It's demonstrated through actions and obedience. And the problem with a lot of Christians is that there's a disconnect between their talk and their walk. Does that make sense? They profess to love God with their lips, but then they walk out the door and deny him by the way that they live their lives. We see examples of this throughout scripture. King Saul provides us with one such example. In the early days of his administration, he had been anointed as Israel's king. And God told him explicitly that he wanted him to wipe out the Amalekites. But rather than obey the voice of the Lord, Saul defeated their army, but then he allowed the king to live, and then he also kept back the choicest of the flocks and the herds. Well, when the Lord revealed to Samuel the prophet what Saul had done, he called out the king on his disobedience. Realizing that he had just been caught in his lie, Saul tried to cover his tracks by telling the prophet, no, 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 I've just kept these flocks alive so that I could sacrifice them to the Lord. Yeah, that's what I did. And here was Samuel's response to King Saul. I'd love it if we could read this together out loud. It's in your notes. Does the Lord delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as in obeying the Lord? 
to obey is better than sacrifice, and to heed is better than the fat of rams. That's 1 Samuel 15, 22. Listen, God loves your worship. That's the Old Testament equivalent there, the sacrifice of praise. However, I think we need to be careful Make sure that our love for God goes beyond lip service. It's not just enough that you have an emotional experience or that you come here and you sing beautiful songs on Sunday. It's also about the life that you live of obedience between Monday and Saturday that expresses your true worshiping God. I've heard one person put it like this. It's not about how high you jump. It's about how straight you walk when you come back down. In other words, we can have those mountaintop high experiences, but we need to walk in obedience to the Lord. And now the Lord goes on to say this, and I will ask the Father and he will give you another advocate to help you. And he'll be with you forever. The spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I'll not leave you as orphans. I'll come to you. Jesus begins here to talk about the gift of the Holy Spirit. He wanted his disciples to know that he wasn't going to abandon them. That's why he said, I'm not going to leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. Now, an orphan is someone who has no one to take care of them, no one to protect them, no one to give them shelter, no one to provide for them. And that's exactly how the disciples were feeling in this moment, isn't it? They felt like they were being abandoned and forsaken by Jesus. He had just told them that he was about to be leaving them. How could they feel anything but abandoned by the Lord? So knowing that they were struggling this way, Jesus sought to assure them. He says, I'm going to ask the Father, and he's going to send the Spirit to you, the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about this. Who is the Holy Spirit? He is a gift from the Father. Jesus says the Father gives The Spirit. He's a gift from God to his bride, the church. Now, Jesus refers to him by a couple of different names here in our text. He calls him the advocate. He calls him the helper. He will come to help you. And he calls him the spirit of truth. And these are all different names for the third member of the Trinity. And what I want to point out to you at this moment is the Holy Spirit is is not just a force. He's not an it. He's not just something that we get a hold of and and use on our whims and to accomplish our will. He is a divine person who we surrender to, and he gets a hold of us, and he carries out his will through us. He has a mind. He has a will. He has a personality. He can be grieved. He can be quenched. He can be blasphemed. We can fill his heart with joy just like any other person. And notice, too, how Jesus calls him here in our text, another advocate. I want to draw your attention to that word, another, because the Greek word that he uses there for another is the word atalos, A-L-L-O-S. And it describes something that is another of the same kind. He could have used a different Greek word. He could have used the Greek word heteros, which speaks of a different or opposite kind, but he didn't. So it's like this. If I had given you an apple, and I say, I'm going to give you another one, and I I take another apple from the tree and I hand it to you, that's another of the same kind. That's alos. They're same. They're both apples. But if I said, let me give you another 
fruit and I go and I pull an orange off a tree and I hand that to you, that's heteros. That's another of a different kind. When Jesus says the, the Holy Spirit is another advocate, he's saying he is going to be to you everything that I have been to you. As I am, so is he. In other words, the Holy Spirit is not a downgrade from Jesus. He's not a consolation prize, but it is as though Jesus himself were standing with us. But it's even better than that because the Spirit dwells within us. So he is another, and he's another advocate. Now, an advocate is one who pleads another's cause before a judge or a counsel for defense. So he's a defense lawyer. Well, why would we need a defense lawyer? Why would we need legal counsel? Let me tell you why. Because we have an adversary, don't we? The Bible tells us that he roams about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. And he stands before God's throne and he accuses the brethren day and night according to the book of Revelation. In fact, did you know that the word Satan literally means accuser or one who accuses or opposes? And we see Satan in this role at various points throughout scripture and one of those instances is there in the book of Job, and, and, and God sees Satan, and he says, where have you been, Satan? He says, I've been roaming to and fro throughout the earth, and he says, have you considered my servant, Job? And he says, yes, I have. I've tactically studied him for weaknesses, and I've observed that the only reason he worships you is because you bless him. And so he accuses Job and he comes against his character and he does the same thing with every child of God. He's like a prosecuting attorney standing before God who is the judge of the whole earth in the heavenly courtroom scene. And here's the worst part about it. You and I are guilty basically of everything that he accuses us of. <laughs> it's like, oh, look at Daniel and look at, look at so-and-so. Oh my gosh, there they are and they're just making a mess of things. We're guilty of all of his accusations. But thankfully, we have a defense team. We have an advocate with the Father. Amen. Praise the Lord. And, and did you know Jesus is our advocate? In 1 John chapter 2, verse 1, he writes this, My dear children... I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So whenever the devil comes before God and accuses you of sin, Jesus, your advocate, your defense counsel, takes the stand and he comes to your aid. He goes before God the Father. He asks permission to approach the bench to the judge who also happens to be his father. And then he shows his father the scars where the nails pierced his wrists and his feet and where the crown of thorns was dug into his skull and where the sword or the spear rather was thrust into his side. And he says, I paid for their sins. They've been paid in full. And when the father sees the blood that atoned for our sins, the gavel falls and the verdict is pronounced. We are declared not guilty. Case closed. Praise the Lord. <laughs> Amen. So that's how the scene plays out in the heavenly courtroom. Because of Jesus, we're declared innocent. However, while we're declared innocent, justified, God sees us just as though we'd never sinned, and that's how it is from heaven's perspective. I don't know about you, but 
On my end, I often still struggle with feelings of condemnation. And here's why. It's because the devil is so good at what he does. He's not just good at getting us to sin initially. After he tempts us and gets us to fall into sin, then he turns around and points an accusing finger at us and says, and you call yourself a child of God? You call yourself a Christian? Look what you just did. And here you are in church on Saturday night. Do you remember what you did last night? Do I need to remind you? And he goes down the list and he accuses us in our hearts and in our conscience. That's why the Holy Spirit comes in. You see, he is another advocate. And in the same way that Jesus advocates for us and stands in our defense before the Father, the Holy Spirit, as another advocate, comes into our hearts and in our conscience, and he reminds us that we are, in fact, God's children. And we see instances of this in God's word. Romans 8, 16 is one example. Let's read this together out loud. It says this, the Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if only we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So the Spirit works with us. As Jesus works with the Father, the Spirit works in our hearts. He reminds us, he convinces us that yes, you've sinned and yes, you've fallen, but he convicts us. He draws us to that place of repentance and then reminds us that we belong to Jesus. So he is our advocate. Amen. Praise the Lord. Secondly, second name that Jesus gives to the Spirit, he calls him the Spirit of Truth. Earlier in John 14, Jesus identified himself as the truth. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And now here he is calling the Holy Spirit the spirit of truth. And this is so good. Why? Because the devil has convinced this world of all of his lies. And the devil has seduced this world with his lies. You know, the devil is a liar. In fact, he is the author of lies. He invented lying, and you know that he's lying because his lips are moving. He's convinced the world that slavery is freedom and that life in Christ is bondage, that it's a straitjacket, that God is against you. And he's working overtime right now because he knows his time is short, and he's, he's attacking us. On these foundational issues, he's attacking us with regards to our identity, isn't he? And we have all of these identity issues that we see in our nation. And then he also attacks us with regards to the nature of our father. Did you know this is exactly what he did with Jesus in the temptation in the wilderness? If you're the son of God, he questions and doubts Jesus' identity. And then he says, hey, God says he'll give his angels charge concerning you. And he casts doubt or aspersions on the nature of Jesus' relationship with his father. And what he did with Jesus, he does with us. He tries to persuade us that God's holding out on this. And this is why the world can't receive him. It's been deceived. But when you become a child of God, it's like the scales are removed from your eyes and you see the truth. And you realize 
that it's not God, but it's this world system that is backwards and turned upside down on its head. Because in this world's opinion, up is down and down is up and right is wrong and wrong is right and black is white and white is black and all the rest. And Jesus comes and he gives you his spirit and the the spirit leads you into the truth and the truth sets you free. So this is the work of the spirit. Praise the Lord. And Jesus gives a third title to the spirit. He says he'll come to help you. And we see Jesus extrapolate on this in verses 25 and 26. So I want to jump down there as we look at what it means and the ways in which the Spirit is given to help us. He says, all this I've spoken while still with you, but the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he'll teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. All right, so the Holy Spirit is here to help us. Praise the Lord. We need help. Anybody else need help? I need help. And so the the Spirit is our helper. But here Jesus outlines two specific ways that the Holy Spirit helps us. And he, he, he specifies, sorry, I'm getting excited. He specifies that the Spirit is a helper in this regard. He is a revealer and he is a reminder. What does that mean? Number one, he reveals It's the spirit who helps us to understand what God's word says. He'll teach you all things. That's what the Lord says. He'll teach you all things. You know, without the spirit's help, the Bible is not just a difficult book to understand. It's downright impossible. (laughs) It's because the words of this book are spirit and they are life. So apart from the spirit, it's just going to be gibberish. That's why one of the definitive signs that you have truly become a child of God is that you will fall in love with this book. Because why? It's how God speaks to you. It becomes his love letter to you. It's like before I was a believer in Jesus and I would try to read the Bible and it just, it was just, it didn't make sense and I couldn't put it together. But then after I came to the Lord, I I found that I had a hunger to know not just the word of God, but the God of the word. And he meets me in his word. And I started to devour scripture. And that's one of the evidences that the spirit is at work in you because he's now teaching you. He's leading you. He's guiding you. He's prompting you. He's, he's raising questions and he's providing answers and he's revealing truths about God's heart and God's will and God's plan and God's nature. And it's all found in this book. So he's a revealer. And he's also a reminder. Notice how he said, when the Spirit comes, he'll remind you of everything I've said. He reminds us of what Jesus said. So the the Holy Spirit brings clarity and certainty. He brings revelation and illumination. Have you ever ever had this experience where you're, you're talking with someone about the Lord, and then you find yourself quoting a verse that you don't even remember memorizing. And it's like, wow, that was like the perfect verse for that conversation. And they're like, wow, that's really good. You must study a lot. And you're thinking, I don't even remember ever hearing that verse. But I think it's, yeah, that's the, that's the word of God. And, and you quote it. And that's the Holy Spirit in you. He's speaking through you and he's furnishing you in the moment with what you need as the situation calls for it. He reminds you of the words of Jesus. Now we see this play out a number of times in the the lives of the disciples and I'll just reference one such instance. Earlier in John's gospel when 
Jesus was making his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and we read about it there in chapter 12. John, as he's referencing that story, because he writes this years later, and he says this about that instance. He says, at first, we didn't understand what was happening. It was only after Jesus was glorified that we realized that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. That's John 12, 16. In other words, after Jesus is resurrected and they're given the spirit, they go back and they revisit these occurrences, these words of Jesus, and they have new insight. They have a new lens through which to view them because the spirit is illuminating their hearts and they're connecting the dots and and it's becoming clear and they're able to see, oh, that was what the prophet the, the prophet Zechariah was talking about, about how your king comes to you lowly and sitting on the foal of a donkey. Oh, and they begin to connect the dots. It clicked, made sense. And so as you read the word, at the appropriate moment, God's going to bring that to your remembrance. Maybe you say, I, I read the word this morning and I just didn't feel like I got much out of it. Don't worry, because it's not just for the moment, it's for the future. In the same way that the food you ate at 5.30 is gonna sustain you through the night and into tomorrow so that you have energy to face whatever comes your way tomorrow, the spiritual manna that you consume today, it's with you forever because the word of God is living and it abides in you. So at the appropriate moment, God can call to your mind what you read maybe two weeks ago, maybe two months ago, maybe two decades ago, and God plants that seed so you can deliver it for such a time as this. But I want to note this, or I want you to note this. The Holy Spirit can't remind you of things that you've never put into your mind in the first place. (laughs) He can only remind you of the things that you've read, which is another exhortation and encouragement for all of us to get into the word. I heard somebody say it like this. If your consumption of social media and news outweighs your consumption of the word, then your depression is (laughs) self-imposed. Ouch. Right, what are you feeding on? What are you furnishing your heart and your mind with? Jesus says the spirit is the revealer and the spirit is the teacher. And he goes on to say this. Go back to verse 17. I want to draw your attention to this. He is the spirit of truth. The world can't accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him. But you know him, for he lives with you, and he shall be in you. Okay, we got to draw this out. The spirit is with us, in us, and he comes upon us. And this is a a foundational verse because it explains the three states that you can find yourself in with regards to the Holy Spirit. Jesus told the disciples, the spirit is, present tense, with you, but he will be, future tense, in you. I want to draw your attention to those words, with and in. The Greek word for with is para, para, and it means to come alongside or to be beside something. And prior to his crucifixion and resurrection, that's the role that the Holy Spirit played in the life of believers. He, he came alongside them, and we read about this in the Old Testament, and that was the same relationship to the Spirit that the disciples had. He was with them. And by the way, this is the same relationship that the Holy Spirit has with all unbelievers today. You can't escape God. He's with them. You say, well, what's he doing with them? 
He's with them, seeking to draw them to the Lord. He's seeking to bring conviction of sin. He's seeking to awaken their hearts to the reality of God's love for them. Years ago, there was a man by the name of Francis Thompson, and he, he, he was a backslidden Christian who tried for the majority of his life to run away from the Lord, but he found that he was unable to do so. Anybody ever know what that feels like? You're trying to walk away from the Lord, but it's like the Lord is relentless in his pursuit of you. And once you've tasted the Lord, you, you're, you've, you've experienced too much of God's goodness to be happy in the world. And, and so he's trying to walk away and he's trying to find joy in the pr- pursuits of pleasure in this world, but he just can't. And finally, in exasperation, he surrenders to the Lord. And He writes this poem about God's pursuit of him, and he titles the poem, The Hound of Heaven. He was referencing the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. And you might find that irreverent. The Hound of Heaven, the Holy Spirit, really? But I think it's an apt picture and description. Once the Holy Spirit is on your trail, it's over because he will stop at nothing. He will relentlessly continue to pursue you until you are safely in the fold. And by the way, for every parent in here of a prodigal son or daughter, praise the Lord, amen? We're praising the Lord for the Holy Spirit who is after our wayward kids, after our wayward friends, after our wayward spouses, maybe. He won't rest until you're safely his. Now, once a person responds to the gospel, at that moment, You are baptized into the family, and the Holy Spirit comes and takes up residence within your heart. And this is what Jesus meant when he said, he is with you. Why? Because Jesus hadn't gone to the cross yet, hadn't died for the sins of the world and risen from the grave. Once he did that, then they could have the experience of the Spirit coming within them. We read about this happening in John chapter 20, verse 22. In that scene, the disciples had gathered together. They're in an, the, the, the upper room, but the doors are locked. They're fearing for their lives. They think that at any moment, the same men who crucified Jesus are going to break down the door and arrest them and have them crucified as well. And then Jesus just shows up in their midst, which is great. The locked doors, the closed windows, they couldn't keep Jesus out. He appears in their midst, and then he invites them to touch the scars on his wrists and on his feet. He tells them, don't be unbelieving, but be believing. And then, John 20, 22, listen. It says, he breathed on them. He breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. And in that moment, the Spirit of God came into them. Did you know that the same word for breath is the same word for spirit in the Bible? Go all the way back to Genesis. God breathed into man and he became a living soul. Breath, wind, spirit, they're all the same word. And so the breath of Jesus breathed on the disciples. They received the spirit. And the same thing happens to every person the moment they're saved. The Holy Spirit comes in you and he makes his home there. However, I want to talk about one more experience because the scriptures, they go on. And they talk about a third encounter that a person can have with the Holy Spirit. And we read about it in the book of Acts. So just before Jesus ascends into heaven from the top of the Mount of Olives, 
He gathers his disciples, and he says to them, I don't want you to to leave Jerusalem, but I want you to tarry here until the promise of the Father comes. And he says this, this is Acts chapter one, verse eight. Let's read this together out loud. He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So now we're reading about the Spirit coming on them. Now the Greek word for with is para. The Greek word for in is en, E-N. And the Greek word translated here as on you is the Greek word epi, E-P-I. And it speaks of an overflowing. The three different experiences of a person with regards to the Holy Spirit. He is with everyone, chasing them down, convicting them, drawing them, wooing them to the heart of the Father. He is in believers. He dwells within believers. And then he can come upon you so that you overflow with power. The word there for power is dunamis in the Greek. It's the same word from which we get our English word dynamite. Dynamite. It's dynamic power. It's power to walk in victory. It's power to experience the fruit of the Spirit. It's power to defeat darkness and break chains. It's power to walk and live the Christian life. Now, <clears throat> I wanted to illustrate this. I remember a Bible college professor doing this with, with uh, my class many years ago. And so he said, let's imagine that this picture here is the Holy Spirit, and there's a limited supply here, but the Holy Spirit is infinite, amen? So the Holy Spirit is pictured by this vase, and uh, this cup represents a person. So the Holy Spirit is with every person on the planet. He's drawing them, wooing them, convincing them that God's not against you. He's for you. He loves you. He sent his only son, Jesus. And if you'll call upon him, you will be saved. And then let's say this believer, this unbeliever becomes a believer. And in that moment, they are filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, the Holy Spirit is in the person. Amen? But then Acts 1.8 The Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost. There was the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and all the disciples are filled with the Spirit. They begin to speak in unknown languages the wonderful works of God, and a crowd gathers, a large crowd, and in that moment, Peter stands up, and he begins with boldness to preach the gospel, and in that one sermon, in response to it, 3,000 people give their hearts and lives to Jesus, and the church is born. Now keep in mind, this is the same Peter who only a matter of weeks prior had denied even knowing the Lord. He had had called down curses on himself, saying, I never knew the man because he was so scared of the questions of an inquisitive little girl. Yet here he is just weeks later, and he's boldly and fearlessly preaching the gospel in front of the same crowds that had once chanted, crucify him. But he's not, he's, he's, he's bold like a lion. What was the difference? The Spirit had come upon him, and it looks like this as it just it just comes and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming and keeps coming. Yes, I made a mess. Yes, I'm going to get in trouble with our stage crew, but it was worth it. Because that's what the Lord wants. There is one baptism of the Spirit. 
But there are many fillings. You say, why do I need to be filled over and over again? Well, because you leak, and so do I. <laughs> That's why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, the apostle Paul said, be not drunk with wine as in excess, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. And the, 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 the phrase, be filled, it literally reads, be ye being filled over and over and over again. The tense of the verb describes a continuous and ongoing action. So how do you know if the Spirit has come upon you? Well, you'll know because there's a greater degree of power as I said, power to defeat sin, power to live a godly life, power to overcome the enemy, power to share and proclaim the gospel, power to be a witness. Now, how many of you want to be filled with the Holy Spirit? A fresh infilling. Praise the Lord. I count myself with you. So how do you get them? You just ask. Jesus is so good. He said, if you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your kids, then how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.